For June 2nd, 2014, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 309. Why is this podcast different from all other podcasts? Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From Los Angeles, California, I'm Matt Rather, uh, and we are here to overthink listener feedback. Yes, that time has come, that long-awaited time when we actually do the listener feedback show that we have long promised you. So uh, we're very excited. I know that you are very excited. We have voicemails. We have emails. We have a technologically advanced system, uh, a kind of virtual patch bay wherein we can play the voicemails into the call and everyone can hear them. I am so excited. We can also insert animated GIFs into the podcast. So it's happening.gif. GIF.gif. Oh, don't get me started on this. It's happening.gif. Oh, wow. I'm just saying, I've been saying GIF uh, since I was... um, since 1989, right, when the GIF 89 standard came out and I had an account on CompuServe. You know how I know I had an account on CompuServe in 1989? Uh, because my 10th birthday was in 1990 and uh, my dad sent an email about the double digit yeah. club. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Jennifer Lawrence, Jennifer Lawrence giving thumbs up. Okay. Dot GIF. 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 So we're going to skip the question of the week this week um, because uh, I have a feeling there might be a lot of questions. Shockhamster.gif. What is that? Is the dramatic, dramatic uh, bird dog? Chipmunk. Dot GIF. GIF. You know, I spend a lot of time, you you know, oh, and so uh, since we're skipping the question of the week, I'll just say that the panel is Pete Fenzel, drink because he's first in the alphabet. Hey, Hey, Pete. Mark Lee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we are lucky to have with us, uh, beyond the dynamic trio uh, of, of uh, usual podcasters, Shana Malofsky, who is, who is our special bonus podcaster. Thanks, Matt. Hi, everyone. It's a bonus that you're here. Okay. <laughs> that means it's good. That means it's good. And I agree. Great. Uh, yeah, well, it's, it's plus it's one. <laughs> Yeah, in in, uh, in in Latin class when we were twelve or thirteen in junior high school, we uh, everyone used to talk about magnum bonum all the time. That is a great good. Um, so uh, yeah, so as a um, as a uh, day job, you know, web developer focusing on on front end engineering, uh, I do a lot of stuff that implements YouTube API stuff to play YouTube videos in the uh, in the front end of people's sites. And, you know, sometimes people want, like, image sliders, but when you click on the image, a YouTube video pops up, and you can do all of that with the JavaScript API that Google provides for YouTube. Um, I always use uh, Dramatic Chipmunk as the demo video for everything. Um, Dramatic Chipmunk appears 20 or 30 times in some, in some websites that I have done the front ends uh, of. So I'm intimately familiar pete with dramatic chipmunk and as a as a person with an mfa in acting i can say that the best acting lesson i've ever had uh is from dramatic chipmunk which is that uh, you don't need to worry about your acting because when they lay in the music track afterwards everything will become clear to the audience uh what they're supposed to feel and what the expression on your face means um the music really does everything are you saying that the chipmunk is like the lorem ipsum, but of videos for you? Yeah, I'm saying it's like lorem chipstum. Excellent. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so let's launch right in uh, to this. We're going to do something a little. We're going to do something a little unconventional. Um, we're going to go backwards in time through through listener feedback and we're we're we are skipping the questions because the listeners are asking the questions this week and also because there might be there might be a lot of question of the week coming up soon so uh, yeah we might have to go back in time in the future (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so uh let's jump right in to a uh to a listener voicemail um and you know if you want to to call the listener voicemail inspired by some of these uh 
it is 203-285-6401. Make sure to leave your name. I mean, we play these voicemails back on the air, so leave a form of your name that you're comfortable having, you know, broadcast on the Overthinking It podcast. And uh, give it your longitude and latitude. That's a tradition that uh, I'm I'm uh, I'm glad that we have, and that I would like to get back to if if ever we can. So, uh, without any further ado, our first voicemail. Hello, overthinkers. My name is Mary. I'm in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, that's latitude four point nine two, longitude negative ninety three point two seven. I was thinking of something that I could uh, broadcast to you uh, via the voicemail. Uh, some kind of question because you always complain that the voicemail never gets used. And then I thought of the perfect thing. Uh, I have no idea what the word dainu means. And because I don't know how it's spelled, I certainly can't look it up that way. So that is my question. What is dainu? Thanks, guys. Anyone? She should have four questions. <laughs> Why is this podcast different from all other podcasts? Because you have a Jew on it, Pete. <laughs> Yay! Um, You're so, our chosen person, Shayna. Always. Oh, thanks. Are you saying we're not diverse? Are you saying Are you saying that a Korean Catholic, an Irish Catholic, and an Italian Catholic are not sufficiently <laughs> diverse for you, I'm Shana? just saying... Look, we can all go walk into a bar whenever you like, all right? Yeah, <laughs> Holy trinity table. of podcasting. We have other Jewish people on the podcast, but Shana, but, but Shana is the one that we've chosen for today. <laughs> They've chosen us. Okay. Um, so Dainu is... <laughs> no, sorry. Dainu is a thing that is said during the, the holiday of Passover, um, which is part of actually a song that they teach in Hebrew school. Um, that is goes die die anu, but I'm not going to sing anymore because I don't want Pete to bother me about my no, character. No, 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 please, please sing, please sing, please sing, <laughs> please. Um, so anyway, it's um, a, basically a poem about how uh, God did all these things for the Jews, and we would have just taken one thing, um. And it would have been enough, which is what Dianu means. So um, I think at the beginning of the poem slash song, it's like, if he had just brought us out of Egypt and slavery there, that would have been enough for us. Um, if he had just killed all the, Egyptian, all the Egyptians, that would have been enough for us. If he had killed all their firstborn sons, that would have been enough for us. Um, and so on and so forth. Um, and it says, like, all the miracles that uh, God did uh, during the Passover story uh, from the time that the Jews escaped from Egypt until they got to the land of Israel. Um, and I think it really has something to do with the fact that, you might not know this, but the Jewish people are not really really an optimistic people. Um, like there's a big saying in our culture of it could always be worse. So uh, I think this idea that like we would just take one good thing, one miracle, because we're not going to ask for more than that because we're not going to get it, you know, but we get all of these miracles. So we make a holiday about it. Um, and then beyond that, it was used. I want to say the first person who used it in a pop culture context was um, the TV critic Alan Sepinwall, who writes for Hit Fix. Um, and I remember him using it when he was writing about Lost, um, where he would say, like, if only they had shown the smoke monster, Dainu, or if only they had moved the island, Dainu, or if only, uh, I forget, like, Ben Linus was punched in the face over and over again, Dainu, which is m my favorite thing about Lost him being punched in the face so that's how people use it um when referencing tv or movies like a, a list of all these great things that one particular uh pop culture uh entity had in one single i don't know just a list i feel like there's another way it can be used also which is in a list of bad things right well, like uh on a, yes yeah, sort of like if if they had only, I mean, I don't know if Lost had only, Lost is a good example, right? Like if they had only not explained the smoke monster, Dianu. I actually don't know whether they explained the smoke monster before, but like you can go down a list of of all the things that Lost didn't explain. Like if they only didn't explain 
A, Dainu, if they only didn't explain B, Dainu, right? Like, uh, I don't know, or if Godzilla had only stomped on the Golden Gate Bridge, Dainu, if he had only stomped on the Golden Gate Bridge and stomped on the Presidio, Dainu, if he had only stomped on the Golden Gate Bridge, stomped on the Presidio and stomped through the financial district, Dainu, uh, right? Like there's, there's another, it's sort of calling out, sort of calling out excesses or the time, the times which pop culture properties, you know, um, are, are prodigal in, in their badness as well as sort of prodigal in their goodness. I feel like you're being either the simple son or the <laughs> every other is like the cynical son or the, the douchey son in that uh, in Passover. There's a part of it where uh, you say what the different children like. The, if what would the intelligent son ask and how you would answer, and then what would the the stupid son ask and how you would answer uh, to tell the kids about how Passover works? It's sort of like. Uh, reverse catechism in a way. Um, I'm just saying, so I'm just saying, guys. I'm insulting you, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, guys, Dianu could be worse. It could. <laughs> so, and, hotzi, hotzi. No. and also, I'm searching, uh, I'm searching oh, Google right now, and it looks like the earliest uh, uses of Dianu on overthinking it go back to 2009. We've been making that joke for about five years. What was the uh, reference? Uh, I believe it was – I'm looking – the oldest one that I can confirm is in an article uh, – oh, gosh. Where did it go? It was – oh, it, it's great. It was from The Greatest Escape in a Disaster Movie uh, in, in Think Tank, um, which was – which it is said uh, – it was in Blinky's section, which is on the day after tomorrow. So, Blakey, by the way, one of the other Jewish people on Overthinking It. Um, the movie follows up the wave with maybe my second... So the wave, there's a wave of, of cold. Uh, oh, yeah, uh, there's a wave of cold that Jake Gyllenhaal has to run after. And then Matt says, uh, his second favorite escape in a disaster movie, Jake Gyllenhaal fleeing a pair of hungry timber wolves who've escaped from the Central Park Zoo. It's both incredibly contrived and incredibly anticlimactic, considering we've just seen a good chunk of the world's population wiped out. And if that was the most ridiculous escape in the movie... Dayenu. So there you go. So it's uh, it was a reference to to, to uh, Jake Joe and Hall being eaten by wolves. He was delicious. As happened in Passover. Yeah, that's right. That actually happened in Passover. Is Jake Joe but, but the 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 wolves dip twice and eat the bitter herb. Yeah. <laughs> it is also it is also a reference in Over, Overthinking It podcast episode one hundred and seventy three in the comment thread where it is. Uh, where we talk, and this was the episode uh, called "Triumph: The Insult Comic Dog of the Will." Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think one day we and should do a in- podcast where we just read through the titles of our old podcasts. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, but the fact that it's used by a listener in the comment thread leads me to think that we'd been using it on the podcast, possibly at that point. But what have you? Nice. Okay. Um, would it have been enough if we moved on? <laughs> sure. I mean, I just remember go, I just remember having a lot of satyrs with all you guys back in the Dizay. Uh, you know, and I always make the jokes about the Haggadah. Um, one of my favorite ones, before we move on, my favorite Haggadah joke was always that there were, there were children, so you had a children's Haggadah. Haggadah being like the book that's read that, that gives you guidance on how to proceed with the Passover ceremony, right? Like, what are the questions? When are the glasses of wine drank? How does it all work? Um, and uh, one of the, it was, there were discussion questions for the children. And uh, one of the discussion questions, the discussion questions were like, how is God like a this? How is God like a that? And my favorite discussion question was like, how is God like a rock? And I answered by saying, because finally the Jews have come back to Jerusalem. Uh, which, which was like a 2008 joke about a. 2000, about a 1947 political development <laughs> so there, involving a 2002 wrestler. So it all, it all comes together. And that's uh, the whole McGilla. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. He's still a 2014 wrestler. Yeah, that's true. You know, uh, if, if we'd only had 2002 rock, Dianu. <laughs> uh, if the rock had only raised the people's eyebrow, Dianu. Um, well, you can't have really drop the people's elbow, because <laughs> you can't leaven things. Like I, I'm done. Uh, That's true. You can't raise the eye, the people's eyebrow on Passover. 
You have to drop the people's elbow. <laughs> <laughs> you have to you have to carry the people's unleavened bread on your back where it bakes in the hot sun. Because you're the people's champion. <laughs> Pharaoh, let my people's champion go. <laughs> He's the most electrifying man in metaphorical understandings of world religions. Uh, all right. Uh, from May 2013, as we work backwards, Bob wrote in, uh, didn't give a latitude or longitude, but Bob wrote into the editor email, uh, didn't know that this was going to be on the podcast. But sometimes, sometimes when people, I don't know what to do sometimes with editor email, other than say thanks for your email, because sometimes people like send a link and it's like, oh, that's an interesting link. Thank you. Uh, you know, sometimes I tweet it in, in the overthinking it Twitter. Um, but uh, but Bob wrote in with a question, and you know if if we answered questions, if we really like took ten minutes and answered every email that came into the editor's email, we would never get running the site done. Um, so we are repurposing your email, Bob, as a, as a question for listener feedback. Uh, Bob writes, so I had a question regarding something in back in the, back to the future, uh, to which I say, uh, yes, Bob, go on. Um, and Bob says, when I used Google. Uh, to Google Back to the Future, your site popped up. Now, the issue I had was sort of addressed in your post, The Paradox of Marty's Headless Brother. Uh, and he gives a link, which I will include in the show notes. So the main question is this. Isn't the entire photograph uh, itself a mystery? And he's talking about the, the photograph where Marty's... Uh, uh, Marty's brother's head um, disappears in the uh, in the photograph, uh, and the general phenomenon of things disappearing from photographs in Back to the Future isn't the entire photograph by which Bob means the physical object of the photograph a mystery? Um, taking headless teenagers out of the equation entirely. Why does the photo even exist? The implication is that if Marty had screwed the pooch, then everyone in the photo would have faded away, but the photo itself would still be there? I guess what I'm asking uh, is, who took a photo of a wishing well with no one standing in front of it for no reason? (laughs) And why does it have any significance at that point? Wouldn't it have made more sense for the entire photograph, and again, Bob means the physical artifact of the photograph in Marty's hand, uh, slowly to fade instead of the subjects in the photo? Right. Um, so, uh, panel, uh, what do you think? Uh, does Bob have a point here? Well, time is like a river, you know? Like, you can put in pebbles and divert it a little bit, but the river is still going where it's going. So, you can kill well, so see, off... Time is a flat circle. <laughs> it's events that keep coming back and happening to us over and over again, and we're just living a dream that we're a person. I'm just a regular guy with a big ass dick. Anti-time, data, anti-time. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm saying that you know maybe in this metaphor or um, the little pebbles that you throw in the river are Marty and his siblings, and if they die, you know what? Um, time. Well, maybe, maybe what I'm saying. It, maybe what I'm saying is that in in all universes, that photo exists. Exactly. And if it's, you were it's not. A- point in time or a constant as uh, lost would say yeah there's actually a great piece of fan fiction that explains the photo of the wishing well without any people in front of it um it actually was originally uh made by a japanese fan fiction artist it's called ringu uh also known as the <laughs> ring and actually it's about a movie it's actually that marty's parents go on to make a movie uh, which is about their anxiety about never having any children and not getting married to each other. Uh, and they have this actress who's this little, is a little person with long hair who looks like a little girl, and she actually goes in the well. Um, but you know, it's. Uh, <laughs> um, I mean, it, yeah, that's I, actually an excellent question. I think, well, yes, right? It would make more sense the entire photograph to slowly fade away. But. Well, okay, but but of course, the purpose of the photo. This is this is a situation where there's like there's in universe things that are happening, and there are out of universe things that are happening. Well, I think one of the things, and we heard this in particular with regards to X Men: Days of Future Past, where um, people were confused, not confused, but people were like, people are, don't like the time travel, and it's confusing, and it leaves a lot of open endedness, and it doesn't really answer a lot of questions. And the question, oh, we asked it in the podcast a couple weeks ago, why make this movie with time travel at all? Because all it does is introduce a bunch of confusing things. I asked and it's that, like, yeah, t- yeah. What was up? 
I asked that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You question. Like, question. What, what and then the, and my answer, which maybe isn't a satisfactory answer, because obviously the real answer is also involves like time travel being awesome and people loving the idea of it. But a further answer is like, well, time travel is a metaphor, or it's a it's a it's a metaphorical framework. It's a metaphor for a frame of understanding that regards memory and uh, and historical memory in particular. In the case of X Men: Days of Future Past, uh, that that's the that's the tenor. Right, that the tenor is historical memory, the thing that you're trying to compare to, and then the metaphor, and, and the tenor isn't historical memory. The tenor is the process of historical remembrance, and the vehicle is the time travel. Right, and it's like, well, what is it trying to compare you to? Uh, like, well, what is what is the reason that there's time travel in the movie is because we're trying to consider something that happens in the past, and when things that happened in the past change, what we're really saying is that our memory of them changes. Basically, the X Men engage in historical revisionism to like paint the 60s as like a progressive time rather than as a militaristic time. And by doing that, they change the outlook of the present and the future from a militaristic present and the future to a progressive present and the future, right? In the sense of back to the future, I mean, maybe you guys can speak to this about your take about it, but like, I feel like if you want to talk about um, what thing that might be happening in the present that it is referring to, it's kind of about a kid learning that his parents were once like him. Right and kind of internalizing, which includes an understanding of the primal scene, um, right? Which is this, 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 the, the uh, psychological, uh, the psychological impact of seeing your parents have sex, right? Is, is something, and it's Freudian and all this other stuff. I'm not saying that has the Freudian implications, but the movie invokes it. This idea that Marty has realized that his parents had to have sex in order to have him, and this fills him with dread and horror. And uh, and that dread and horror is the well, which of course represents the mother, right? And the the, the and then the the well with the children not in front of it is the emptiness of the mother, right? Which is which is being conceived in the absence of children, and thus like the presence of the children in front of the well represents that the children have come out of the mother, and this is a thing that has to have happened, uh, right? And then and then the idea of the children disappearing is this fear. I guess it, you could think of it as a Freudian fear of being subsumed into the well, but really it's just like this. This it's a fear of a, a circumstance which you already preconceived to have happened. I mean, I'm I'm riffing here, guys. Jump no, but I think I think I think that you're right. Like because you can another way to interpret the three the it's three right. It's it's one brother and one sister. Uh, yeah. However many it is, so the one one way to interpret the children standing in front of the well um, is not just that they were generated by the well, but that they are defenders of the well, right? And like the understanding of the primal scene, um, it happens kind of by way of Marty realizing that his mother sees him as a potential date, right? As a, as a potential romantic interest. And that those, that does have Freudian implications of the, of the idea that sort of his mother is flirting with him and coming on to him and like, uh, calls him Calvin Klein because she takes off his pants and sees him in his underwear. Um, yeah. it is, the, it is uh, pretty stupid of me to say that a Freudian interpretation of back to the future is not called for because it is very much called for. Well, no, anyway. I mean, I, th- I, I, I'm not sure that's what you said. It's more that it yeah. wasn't being active by that particular uh, yeah, by that particular yeah. aspect it's being activated by other aspects of the <laughs> yeah. film uh, no doubt I'm looking so- at the picture now by the way and it not only has a well but it has a, a tree next to it that is sort of bending towards the well as yeah. if you go into the well probably straight up bulkington rises the apotheosis uh, the um, right the the children defend uh, the well. Um, it's another way of looking at the line of children in front of the well. Is that they're they're a barrier uh, in front of the well. That is to say, the presence the presence of of the children marks the mother as sort of not available sexually anymore, right? And that that as the as the children disappear, uh, it it is concomitant with Marty's uh, the kind of horror, not just at the idea of the primal scene, but the horror at the idea of Marty's mother being available to him as a peer. Uh, a potential sex partner, right? Like, right, or right. potential potential romantic partner, and the 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 children disappearing, right? Like, is the well being unguarded? It's not just the mother's womb being empty. Uh, it's it's also the the well being open for drawing water from, as it were, right? Uh, and and that that is a, that is an object of horror uh, as well in in the film. Yeah. So it's which it's, is interesting. That's really interesting because it's not that Marty is necessarily horrified by the absence of him. Himself, he's also horrified by his direct view of the well. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, I interrupted super. you when you were midstream. No, no, that was it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you got so, me. So, at so, the... so, so, yeah. So the result of the 
while we might consider the result of the failure of Marty's parents to kiss at the dance, we would consider the consequence of that to be Marty's non-existence. Really what we're saying, yes, is, is more that the non-existence of the, of the memory or concept of Marty's parents kissing results in not the non-existence of Marty, but the confrontation of Marty with his mother's uh, Yoni, Yoni, right? Or not Yoni, but like with the Yonic image of his mother's uh, you know, fertility or availability. You were saying it better than I was without well, yeah, with the, with the With the sort of full realization of, yeah. of his mother as, like a, as a completely sexual person and not just as like a mother function, right? Which is yeah. how, you know, you see your parents as a child you know as a as a parenting as a sort of parenting function and as you know as their relationship to you as being the primary relationship uh not just in your life but in their life and the universe right rather than be a, a, rather than them having a whole set of of attachments and feelings and capacities for uh for all kinds of feelings including sexual ones um and and it's it's the realization it's the realization of that it's the coming to terms it's the coming to terms with that and the kind of existentially nauseating encounter with the mother as just another just another human being right yeah with a with a, a sexuality and not not sort of constrained by the the role of uh, not constrained by the role of mother and that's that's all sort of encoded in that in that sort of empty photograph of the well. Yeah. I mean, it's notable also that it's a wishing well, right? And so the implication of the children being in front of the wishing well is that the children are the result of the wishes of the parents. If the father is the tree and the mother is the well in the picture and the children are there, then what it means is that the wish has been fulfilled, right? But if the children are not there, then that means you have to throw something into the well. And Marty does not want to throw something into the well. well he wants to, <laughs> he, he wants to be thrown out from the well. Go ahead, yeah. Shannon. I, I was going to say um, the fact that his parents uh, did not kiss at, at that beginning time and the timelines are shifted. Uh, you remember that uh, at, towards the end, the mother was going to be raped by Biff, right, um, in that car scene. Um, so in that case, uh, she might have had a child as a result of that rape, but it wouldn't have been a child that was wished for. It would have been a child forced upon her um, who I guess would be in a different and more... I don't know, sinister looking picture. Wow, yeah, that is pretty dark. Well, I think yeah, it's, it's Game it's, of Thrones is on tonight, so. <laughs> Fair enough. We'll talk about that tomorrow. Um, but yeah, but it's also notable that if the reason, one of the reasons then symbolically why the picture doesn't disappear is that the picture isn't about Marty, it's about his parents, right? The picture itself represents the parents, and of course the parents do continue to live their lives irrespective of, uh, of Marty's non-existence. Um, so in that sense, the picture still exists. But yeah, but it's not. It's out of universe. It's it's not in universe for that explanation. What about what they're wearing? Because um, we have the picture. It's like she's wearing a class of 1984 T-shirt, which apparently has a bulldog on it, which looks kind of like a Yale bulldog, interestingly enough, and some some uh, leopard print tights. And the brother who goes to prison is wearing a Mickey Mouse shirt. Um, interestingly enough, and Marty is just all in jean, blue on blue, all the time, everywhere. Um, I, maybe that's a red herring. I guess the cutoff jeans are kind of notable. Um, there is Excellent. a little hutch over the over the wall. Anyway, yeah, I think we've probably plumbed that. Well, well. like a, like a hopo. Eh? Is there a hopo? <laughs> uh, for want... those who aren't Jewish in the audience, that would be the little hut uh, that goes over the bride and groom during a Jewish wedding ceremony. So perhaps that. Uh, goes with our whole theme of marriage and sex and babies and so forth you guys if we just identified uh the in-universe versus out-of-universe concepts for uh this photograph dainu i mean if we <laughs> if we identified the well as a yonic symbol and all the Freudian symbology behind that dainu and now we drink the fourth glass of wine. <laughs> <laughs> we drink the fourth glass of Trader Joe's box wine. All right, let's uh, let's listen we- to this uh, next voicemail, and then uh, and then um, we'll figure out what uh, <laughs> what the heck is going on. Hello, overthinkers. This is Agam calling the number because he or I wanted to know what would happen upon calling it. Um, calling out of Manchester, New Hampshire, beautiful Manchester, New Hampshire, covered in ice and snow. My Warhammer 40,000 OK Keep It profile, it was shut down because I was uploading artwork in lieu of having an actual photo. Rest in peace. There is no justice. Um, thanks again, and I'll be listening next week. 
So what is going on here? Uh, in the grim, dark future, there is no love. There is only OkCupid. So what's <laughs> happen- what is happening now that he put his voice into the voicemail? <laughs> no, what what is the background of this particular of this particular call, right? Um, oh. because, do, do, well, do you remember this, Pete? I thought that you could. I thought that you oh, could yeah. fill us in on this. Oh, Shana wanted to jump in there first. No, 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 Pete, please. Okay, so Manchester, New Hampshire, was founded in. No, 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 never mind. Uh, so, <laughs> Shana, over to you. What's going on here? I, I believe that Agam. It's Agam, right? This isn't is Agam. His name? Yeah, Agam. Yeah, Agam created an OK Cupid profile that was like Blood Four with the number four, <laughs> blood, the Blood God. That was just a reference to the tabletop war game uh, Warhammer 40K, uh, which is also a series of novels and extended universe stuff and ample fanfic. Which portrays a notably gender non-diverse for the most part, or very notably non-sexual. I will say, I won't say non-sexualized because so much is like if if we spent this much time talking about the wishing well and Back to the Future, like we could spend literally years talking about a comparable amount of Warhammer 40k imagery in terms of its sexual subtext because it's it's enormous, literally, usually in the form of an enormous <laughs> sword with spikes on it. Um, but uh, but there is no. There is, in the grim dark future, there is only war. Is one of the sayings of of Warhammer 40k. It's the big marketing tagline. It's about the year forty thousand, where humanity is mostly clones or whatever, or like the soldiers are mostly clones, and and we're we're fighting against these psychological demons that live in this alternate dimension that are trying to burst through our dimension. But it's also the only way to travel faster than light. And there's a human emperor that sits on a dead throne that can, uses his psychic force. It's all very messed up. Um, but the point is that it's not romantic, and uh, and Agam uh, took one of these characters, I believe, a, a blood angel. Oh, not a blood angel. It was uh, oh gosh, one of the a bad guy, like a, like a, the blood the blood angels. I believe are actually. Uh, protagonistic, if you prefer the Imperium of Man. But anyway, this guy who believes in murdering and killing lots of people to feed the insatiable hunger of this otherworldly god that like lit thrives on bloodlust, and had a whole OK Cupid profile about what he likes to do in his spare time and what movies he likes and like how he likes to hang out and go out sometimes and stay in. Um, and it was very funny. I very much enjoyed it. Um, it was I, yeah. I read this OK Cupid profile also because he he sent it in and apparently it's been taken down, so we can't put a link in the show notes but yeah. it was it was hilarious right like you know i don't know what do you you know what are three things you can't live without my enormous sword with spikes on it right like the <laughs> yeah yeah exactly. you know it was and really I, you know, yeah exactly because he has the the knowledge of warhammer 40k to make it sound plausible and it's one of those things where it doesn't require you to have the knowledge of warhammer 40k for you to think that it's plausible it's like oh that sounds right like that sounds like he's getting it right. I feel like that's an intuitive uh, feeling that we all get uh, when we're re- regarding other people's fandom. I don't know if you guys feel that way, where you can listen to somebody talk about a fandom that you're not part of, and you can tell f- just from the cadence or from the, their sort of the, the way that they deal with it emotionally or the way that they write or whatever, whether they're legit or not. Like, or you feel like a sense of legitimacy or illegitimacy coming from this discussion of this un, uh, semi-unknown or unknown fandom. I mean, do you guys know what I'm talking about there? Yeah, I remember this time when I was listening to this podcast, and uh, I really felt the legitimacy flowing from a podcaster talking about Ghostwriter Spirit of Vengeance. The way that <laughs> the, the pee of flame flows from the Ghostwriter's body. Indeed, um, indeed. I'm reminded of that moment. Yes, that was Pete. That's what I'm referring to. Fair enough. Fair enough. Oh, I, I want to add something here when we're talking about um, uh, injecting fictional characters into the web tools that we use on a day-to-day basis. Uh, this is an excellent example of this trend. Uh, another one of which is uh, the most famous ones is the Yelp entry for McDowell's, which is the restaurant from Coming to America. Um, I believe it gets uh, uh, not a lot of stars because uh, the food is not that good there. Somebody else familiar with this? I know the one from uh, Breaking Bad, the chicken place they did it was pretty funny nice <laughs> uh all right um pushing on uh we have uh we have another email <laughs> about yonic symbols uh this one vis-a-vis sharktopus from back in september 11th uh oh <laughs> inopportune day uh but uh the month of september 2013 um 
And but you're uh, just gonna never forget, Matt. You're not allowed to whitewash away the existence of that day just because this is about sharktopus and not about terrorist attacks. <laughs> I didn't want to uh, import a whole other discourse into the already fecund and uh, and um, fraught discourse of of uh, sharktopus that we're about to to get into. I actually oh, intended, to but I, I don't think we day. should shrink in fear from but the reality my- that other things happen on days sometimes. That yeah, that after September tenth, there is another day. Um, so, uh, but uh, but I also meant that date to uh, to illuminate how long it's been since we've actually done a listener feedback episode. So um, this needs a little a little setup. Uh, our listener Daniel E. Um, sent an email to his friend, and apparently his friend Fran uh, had been a little bit familiar with overthinking it, but we had done the uh, Sharkto podcast about the sci-fi movie Sharktopus, which was awesome, and uh, it was an awesome podcast about that awesome movie. Um, And uh, Daniel E. wrote to his friend Fran the following email uh, saying that perhaps she should know about the podcast or listen to it. so this this is actually not listener feedback. This whole thread got forwarded to us by Daniel E. Later. Uh, Daniel wrote to Fran, I was listening to the Overthinking It podcast. They were discussing the movie Sharktopus, uh, and there was a part that was just too good not to share. And here Daniel E. does a, uh, does a, a little uh, dialogue, a little script of what we said. Um, so the first person says... Is the sharktopus supposed to be yonic and phallic at the same time? Uh, you mentioned the stabby tentacles and obviously the gaping maw, uh, to which a second person replies, and Daniel E. doesn't include who it was who said what, uh, because presumably this would not be of interest to Fran because she doesn't know us. But the answer to this question is, uh, yeah, actually, the sharktopus represents a kind of fusion of gender identities and is, as such, is an extremely progressive statement about queer studies and identity politics that I'm sure will be studied in university cultural <laughs> studies departments for decades to come. And, uh, and, and later on in the podcast, another uh, overthinker opines, uh, you know, whenever the sharktopus feeds, there's a bloody scene underwater where you can sort of see what's happening, but it's mostly just blood and, and water and, and kind of flailing legs. You know, there's definitely this periodic bleeding that happens where every five minutes the sharktopus has its time of the movie. Um, and Daniel E. sent this email on to Fran, and um, Fran uh, replied uh, back in September, <laughs> that fateful day in September 2013, uh, Fran replied, um, these people win the internet. Uh, I must admit, says Fran, uh, replied to Daniel, uh, upon first glance these Im- uh, uh, on these images, my reaction was disgust. Um, I found myself in turmoil immediately uh, as my own open uh, sexual identity uh, hit hard. And I realized that the the combining of these two symbols and the element of disgust uh, and fear that the film wished to portray uh, is clearly commenting on the conservative view our society has about uh, trans-slash-intersexual humans. And, uh, in fact, while they may be wishing to bring this to light, they're also propagating it by making this creature, this this sort of biform creature, the monster of the film. As I stared into the abyss, it saw me and brought about this tragic realization. Um, uh, what do you think? Uh, Fran... Uh, writes back and and says uh, that. So um, so what do what do we think? I mean, it, it's only if we had podcasted about Sharktopus once, Dianu. If someone had written us a listener feedback article about Sharktopus, Dianu. But now we return to Sharktopus. What do you think? I mean, is is actually we had called out Sharktopus as being a politically progressive symbol. Is uh, the Sharktopus actually a politically regressive symbol that um, uh, that encodes cultural transphobia by making the Sharktopus the f- the the fusion uh, or the fluidity of the the yonic and phallic of the the masculine and feminine uh, gender identities um, an object of horror uh, and of disgust. I don't remember if you talked about this on the podcast, but this isn't the first time there has been a monster of this type. I mean, the big one is the alien and aliens, right? Which is, um, has that, uh, it sticks its, uh, 
I don't know how to say it. It shaft into people and uh, then it bursts out of you in a sort of weird uh, pregnancy and labor. And then you have the face suckers that are obviously look like uh, scary vaginas, right? Um, so I guess the question is, one, can Sharktopus be that progressive um, if someone was making movies about that? I don't know when Alien came out, how many decades ago now. Um, and two, I mean, I guess in Alien it could be taken either way because obviously the Alien was uh, very frightening. Uh, so I guess that was regressive in that sense. But on the other hand, the movie is about Ripley, um, who is sort of... I don't want to say between genders, but she doesn't have the markers of traditional femininity like um, other female characters of that time period. And she was seen as um, a really great heroine um, who was sort of a mix of the masculine and feminine. So I guess it could go either way. Hmm. I, I mean, do we want to look at ghosts of Sharktopus past or ghosts of Sharktopus future or ghosts of Sharktopus present? Or are we uh, just caught in an infinite loop of Sharktopods, <laughs> you know, uh, and we just repeat over and over and over? I think you have to to understand what's going on in Sharktopus. You need to take a step back and look at the history of these sorts of monster movies. And I think looking at Godzilla is the most illustrative. Because Godzilla, there are two kinds of Godzilla movies. Ones with Puff Daddy and without. No, that's not true. There are two kinds of Godzilla movies. There are ones where Godzilla is the antagonist, and then there are ones where Godzilla is the protagonist. Well, not the protagonist. That's not fair to say. I will, I will, I will rephrase it. There are ones where Godzilla is the problem, and there are ones where Godzilla is the solution. Uh, right? And and the so there's the original wait, wait, Godzilla. a Godzilla pro- uh, solution to a Godzilla problem? Exactly. That's a, it's a Godzilla solution to a mecha Godzilla problem. <laughs> right. right? And it's like Godzilla is a solution. Like Mothra fights Godzilla. This idea that you're going to hire these monsters to fight each other because you can't do it. Right? So Godzilla starts as this, as this cautionary symbol of the nuclear age and of the, uh, the evils that we've awakened and unleashed upon the world due to our use of nuclear weapons. And that's why it destroys Tokyo and that's why this is terror that plagues Japan. It's this giant unstoppable monster thing that we can't do anything about, uh, like nuclear weapons hanging over us and causing this vast cultural... Uh, crisis that's happening to japan at the time but then we have this thing where godzilla goes camp and where godzilla uh is is enlisted in the battle against monsters that do not even pretend to godzilla's original level of gravitas right and it's like what does the moth represent it doesn't really matter i mean it does if we were to go and watch like a mothra movie we could figure out what mothra represents but but really like mothra is not representing that seriously so what we're seeing is the, exa- is the phenomenon described by Fran previously but flipped, where in the original Godzilla, we are bashing nuclear uh, energy, nuclear power, nuclear weapons, all these things, because it is this monster that's attacking Tokyo. But don't we really also kind of think the monster is awesome? Right? Like, that monster is pretty totally sweet. So then this movie ends up sort of complimenting, or let me rephrase it, the readership of the movie, the reader experience of the movie, uh, interprets Godzilla as a compliment for nuclear weapons, a sort of Scarface phenomenon, where Scarface becomes the good guy of the movie Scarface in the interpretation. Right? Because it's like, oh, we see this gangster and we identify him and we want to be a hero. And then there's these other movies where Godzilla is this hero, but there are all these campy movies where there's no, where there's a different relationship with Sirius. Now, of course, if you know your gender studies, you would know, oh, camp, oh, this has to do with gender, right? And about, like, gender normativity and and all this other stuff that's kind of up in the air, right? And uh, and certainly in Japan, camp and gender normativity uh, and the theater and all this other stuff, there's plenty to talk about there. But but in this case, um, Sharktopus, is Sharktopus a Godzilla or is Sharktopus a, Sh- a Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla movie? Um, it if you haven't seen it, you, you might think it's more of a Godzilla kind of movie where Sharktopus is this monster and we really need to stop it. But it it's kind of feels like that Godzilla is a hero, is like a heroic campy thing where the people that get eaten by God by Shark uh, sorry, Shark Sharktopus. The people that get eaten by Sharktopus uh eat, deserve it. Uh, generally for being poorly written, right? It's like it's just, <laughs> the, the scenes where Sharktopus eats people 
are really silly a lot of the time, right? It's like someone's just on the beach and, oh, my God, where's my top? And Sharktopus, right? And it's just um, – and you're like, yeah. I remember when they aired it on TV, they were running live kill counts like on the Outbumps to commercial. Right? We were talking about this. We were talking about this that um, – again, I always forget his name, uh, the smarmy host from Joe Schmo. Uh, who is in Sharktopus and does get eaten by Sharktopus, was hosting the TV show and praising and talking about all the people that Sharktopus kills. So in this case, okay, so if Sharktopus is a semi-protagonistic, campy symbol of transphobia, of like the the sort of um, the object of fear of transphobia, right? Sharktopus is not itself, you know, or herself, transgender so much as Godzilla represents what we might fear when we are afraid of non-gender normativity or, you know, or trans things, right? Um, well, it's campy. It's funny. Uh, it's it, In this case, it's turning upside down the established order. There's something that's in the carnivalesque to it. There's something that's sort of disabling our, our cultural prejudices to it. It's kind of transformative. There's a lot of that kind of power in camp. Drag queens. Sharktopus is a drag queen, right? Like it, it, Sharktopus is, is a drag queen octopus that's dressed up like a shark. Right. I'm, I'm I'm struck by what you're saying and by the idea that like it's impossible to make an anti Sharktopus movie in the yes, same way yes, that it's yes. that it's impossible to make an anti war movie because yeah, yeah, exactly. uh, because Sharktopus looks so awesome on screen yeah. right and like and Sharktopus also causes so much excitement right so much glee and kind of arousal in in the people that are uh, that are watching Sharktopus you know yes. and so it's it's I I think it's 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 a mistake to say that because because like this is in some notional way an object of horror uh, to say that this is in fact an object of horror. It's in fact an object of glee, right? Yes. And the 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 uh, so it's it's uh, right the the kind of cultural red flag that it that it raises for me is is this kind of a bearded lady in a sideshow, uh, right? Yes. Rather than like is this is this encoding like serious. Uh, you know, uh, serious transphobia that it, you know that is oppressive and and um, uh, uh, politically politically retrograde. Um, it's it's like are we are in fact are we making making light of the the serious progressive message of the sharktopus? Right? Like um, you know, are we diverting the the sharktopus ma- march on Washington off into? Uh, you know, into a district of the carnivalesque or something to right. to now, make a metaphor and yeah. Now the counterpoint though is that Fran would be right were she describing Sharknado because Sharknado <laughs> Sharknado is the same thing, but it's what Fran describes, where you have the masculine sharks that are caught up in the feminine maelstrom, right? And the maelstrom is the problem. Right. There's this idea that we need to get the maelstrom. We need to get the sharks out of the maelstrom. We need to get like the teeth. We get, need to get the dentata out of the vagina. That's the issue. Right. And, and it's like that. The problem isn't like the fusion of it or the unnaturalness of it. It's that it needs to be resolved. Right. And that like we need to kill it. Um, and and shark, Sharknado is full of heroic acts of shark killing. Um, and like, you know, there's a lot more chainsaws in Sharknado than there are in Sharktopus. Sharktopus, Sharktopus, when is slain, is slain by explosives in its own brain, right? Which were, I think, put there as a failsafe. Uh, Sharktopus, uh, explodes internally, right? From things that are within itself. Whereas the Sharknado is killed through a combination of like military intervention and chainsaws. Um, there's a scene where the, a father, I believe, chainsaws through the belly of a shark to rescue his daughter from the inside of the shark, uh-huh. right? And this this is like, which is pretty much the exact opposite of everything we've been talking about in this podcast. It is like, it is when Marty McFly is looking on that well in horror, this is like, hey, wouldn't it be great if, like, your parents were your sexual partner? And it's like, that's terrible. <laughs> the message of Sharknado is not generally a positive one. Uh, nor one that I would, that I would buy into. Uh, Sharknado is a movie that I think is a lot more pleasurable if you think of it as terrible and as something that you object to on like a basic level. Whereas Sharktopus is campy where you, where it's on board with you not thinking it's good. 
Uh, you know what I mean? And in that sense, I think that Sharknado is the far more gender normative and conservative of the sh- of the sort of uh, trans shark movies of, of the phenomenon trans shark movies. We won't even get into sharks in Venice because that gets a lot more complicated. But uh, but that's that's what that's that's what I. Uh, that's what that's what I feel about those things. <laughs> it's also notable that, that Sharknado stars a nine hundred two one zero star who is like an aging male sex symbol. Uh, right. It's not Luke Perry, not Jason Priestley, not Brian Austin Green, but the other. Yeah, guy. the the, the, pro- the problem is the maelstrom, or as it were, the female strum. Nice. nice. <laughs> uh, all right, so. Um, so uh hey uh there's a voice in our voicemail which is a little bit familiar. Let's uh open the voicemail and see who it could be. Hey guys, this is Robin. I guess it's good I'm not doing ICBM addresses anymore since my new job is actually in the Presidio in San Francisco, the former military base. So, anyway, I just wanted to leave you a message. I'm driving and listening to the one of the episodes, and I have to say, Muppet Arabaros, thank you, Finzel. Uh, that's another entry in the greatest phrases ever uttered by humanity. All right, keep it up. Bye. But uh, no sooner had Robin hung up than... Hey, guys, this is Robin again. I just got to give a quick update. Automuppetology and automuppetraxis? Yeah, definitely in the highlights of the English language there, too. Good job, Pete. Pete, your uh, neologisms are uh, are singled out for particular distinction among your many distinguished contributions to the podcast. I I appreciate it. It's because I, I don't know the words that I'm supposed to use, so I use <laughs> other ones. <laughs> I love I, uh, praise, by the way. Praise is great. People should send praise. It's the best. <laughs> you guys are awesome, too. I love you guys. Someday, I, someday on this podcast, I will give you all the praise that you truly deserve. Um, today, though, it's about me. No, it's not. It's about you guys. Um, but no, no, no. Anyway, anyway, anyway. But yeah, do you want to make up more neologisms like right now? Should we do that? <laughs> Let's do two or three. Two or three, so we got to come up with a neologism. Okay, neologism. How do you say that? Am I saying? Well, I mean, right? I think female. I think female strum is not a bad. Uh, is not a bad. Uh, yeah, you know, contribution yeah. to femologism could it sounds dirty. Never mind. <laughs> so wait, we're trying to come up with a uh, a shinado. No, that's not so good. Um, I'm tr- so gosh, this is kind of weird. Ta- coming up, shark to pussy is a James Bond. Movie? I would watch that. Not, oh, movie. not a word, but no, that's true. That's a good point. Um, let's see. Uh, I mean, we're trying pretty hard at this. So they, they have to come natural, like 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 a like a tentacled shark from the depths of the ocean. It must emerge naturally from horrible experiments intended to do other things, um, or something like that. I, w- I was thinking before about what Fran was saying about how she looked into the abyss of uh, Sharknado, and it was making me think of. Uh, how if we stare into the sharktopus, um, the sharktopus might stare back in, into us. And so I, I uh, suggest that maybe we have a shark, or thus spoke sharktothustra, is my <laughs> word the, of the day. The, the, uh, sharktopustra. <laughs> there we go. Shark, shark <laughs> Is that what it is? Shark shark it's when you are concerned that if you watch sharktopus, you will soon not necessarily become the sharktopus, but bring the sharktopus into you in some way. Got it. I'm trying to think of like a good uh, also spoke. Oh, the, so we not also spoke Zarathustra because that's the musical piece. We're talking about thus spoke Zarathustra. Um, well, isn't that isn't also also Sprock Zarathustra is the is the German name right? And, it's all and the same. Thus, it's all, I guess it's all the same. I'm trying to find a good passage. It's shark. It's shark depots all the way down. That's probably <laughs> see. Like what what I envision is a tentacle wrapping around a statue of a shark. All right, and that's uh, <laughs> I'm like I'm like scrolling um, through it now. Um, oh gosh, thus. So hey, uh, you. You remember back uh, way, way, way back in in um, February uh, when yeah, uh, <laughs> am I not supposed to mention historical events to correspond to minor things that we do? <laughs> <laughs> Never forget. Never February. forget. Um, the uh, uh, 
the um, the email that I mentioned actually back in in February uh, on this very podcast uh, being written by Vogue, and I didn't know how to pronounce his name, and and he wrote in and said uh, he wrote in and said it's pronounced Logue. Um, so uh, I, I mentioned that that Logue uh, wrote an email because I think a few months ago is when I began saying, oh, you can email the email that no one ever emails or call the, the voicemail that no one ever calls. Uh, obviously, this is not true. This is manifestly false because we have um, – uh, many emails and voicemails uh, and a backlog even uh, larger than what we've managed to get to today um, still left to go. And and by the way, those are older just because we've started with the most recent uh, perversely and uh, proceeded backwards, um, you know, which is as bad a sin, I suppose, as, uh, you know, treating it like a stack and not a queue. It's as bad a sin uh, as going out of order in the question of the week. Uh, it would really screw up the podcast. But we've been doing OK so far. Um, the, uh, so, uh, I mentioned that Logue had actually written in to the email that nobody ever emails, but I never read his email <laughs> on the air. So here it is, uh, from Logue, uh, back in Black History Month, um, back in, uh, on the 17th of February, 2014, Logue writes, I was saddened to hear in your most recent overthinking a podcast that you don't receive many emails. I myself have written many else to you, all of which have languished either in my drafts folder and my drafts mind folder, uh, which are beyond re- irrelevant at this point, so it's not worth going into those. However, concerning episode 290, the in medias race of choice, I did want to say something about how I too had been noticing a rise in in medias race in cinema and other media and was glad to hear it in podcast form, both in dialogue and action. Um, because uh, if you'll recall, listeners, episode 290 is when we the podcast in medias race and then circled back around uh to the beginning of of the podcast uh which i admit was a gimmick we'll never do anything like that again but you know it was fun while it lasted uh logue continues i have wondered if the deployment of this narrative technique is actually a result of the oversaturated media culture between reboots prequels multiple trailers media blitzes and entire websites dedicated to spoilers and gossip the average moviegoer has extensive foreknowledge of the plot long before heading into the theater, leaving it seemingly impossible to see a movie and not know its story on some other meta level. Uh, this, I'm sorry, I'm going to interject into Logue's email and say this has interesting uh, implications for what we call the ghost ship moment. Uh, but continuing on, uh, I have to grapple with this modern problem, Logue writes, uh, with your own podcast. In fact, as my wife and I usually wait for, wait for movies to come out to rent, I often debate for weeks or months whether or not to listen to your podcast on a film I want to see. I sometimes come to temptation and listen, which does enhance my viewing experience when I eventually get around to watching the film, but sometimes I stop one of your podcasts mid-sentence and wait for the movie. Uh, Maybe we are always in the middle of things, flipping through channels of possibilities in our lives when we come to a movie, catching it at some key scene and having to rewind. But I digress. Uh, I hope this email was worth sending out of the drafts folder. Thank you so much for the podcast and websites. Uh, Continued success. Logue, uh, 40 degrees 0.67 north, uh, 73 degrees 0.95 west. Uh, well, thank you, Logue. I mean, do you, what, that's an interesting question. Do you think the in medias race phenomenon has to do with um, uh, an analog in our, in our real lives? Uh, you mean, so an analog in the sense of something that we're That is to say, is the, is the, yeah, is the phenomenon, is the, the, the narratological uh, technique that, you know, we've for being overused, and indeed it is overused, but is that technique um, powerful? Is it compelling because it has something to do with our actual experience of our own lives and isn't just a gimmick to... Um, to do it. I mean, I, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say yes, right? Like, it, we're always sort of narrativizing things that happened ex post facto, as it were, right? We're always sort of telling, uh, telling ourselves the story of why things are the way they are, uh, of, of why, you know, my keys ended up on this table instead of the place where I usually put them, or why I can't find the thing I'm looking for, or why, you know, something happened at, at my job, right? Like, we're always sort of concocting elaborate narratives uh, 
to explain uh, phenomena. And, and that involves like an experience and then sort of going back imaginatively into the past and reconstructing um, often inaccurately, but, but very kind of persuasively for our own uh, interpretive lives, our own sort of sense of the discourse drink of uh, our own lives, uh, reconstructing the events that, that led up to this moment. And then the, that reconstructed narrative can become really um, strangely authoritative in terms of how we deal with uh, circumstances and and other people. So in that sense, I think Logue is on to something um, when he says, like, maybe we are always sort of in, in medias race and maybe this, this uh, narrative technique encodes, um, encodes an experience that we are all uh, all too familiar with. I'm not exactly sure what it means to apply this term to our own lives because we are always in the middle of our lives. The only way it would be at the beginning is if we started at our birth, our stories, which we couldn't have. I mean, in Medias Rays, it doesn't necessarily always mean that you see like a scene at the beginning and then you go back to before it right like um in wouldn't you say that um raiders of the lost ark starts basically in media's race because it's an action scene but it has nothing to do with what comes next but and what comes next is what comes next in time it's not like we go back and learn why he went to get the statue right i wouldn't just say that raiders of the lost ark starts in media's race I mean, I think it depends how you define it, doesn't it? I thought it just meant, I guess it depends on, like, if you're talking about something like the Iliad, okay, then they they start in the middle of the action, then you go back. But then, can't you use it to mean, like, you start in an action scene without any buildup, and then you just keep going in order from beginning to end? I never thought of it as meaning that. Oh really? Okay. Yeah, I never, I never thought of it. Uh, I'm gonna look it up. I mean, it's possible. Let's see. Um, so the see. The, yeah. the phrase comes the frames comes from Horace, who is talking about um, uh, uh, the poetic arts. Uh, he's talking. He's talking about. Um, uh, I guess not not actually a historical example um he's talking about an idealized epic poet he's sort of he's sort of making a normative claim about epic poetry uh, and saying uh nor does that idealized epic poet begin the Trojan war uh ab ovo uh from the egg from the the seed of things, but he always hurries to the action he snatches the listener in medias race into the middle of of things uh yeah. Um, but I'm looking at Wikipedia, which is always right, and um, it says, in medias res, often, but not always, entail subsequent use of flashback. So, Well, I mean, Wikipedia. I'm looking at, I'm, I'm looking at Encyclopedia Britannica right now, and it says that it plunges into a crucial situation that is part of a related chain of events. The situation is an extension of previous events and will be developed in later action. Uh, the narrative then goes forward, and exposition of earlier events is supplied by flashbacks. Um, I mean, I don't know. I, I wouldn't. I, I mean, I guess this might be a matter of taste. I can't say no one would ever describe it as such, but I would never describe a story that merely starts in the middle of an action sequence and then proceeds chronologically without flashbacks. I would never describe that as in Medias Race. I may describe it as starting in the middle of things, but I, I always thought that in Medias Race implied that you went back at some point in the story to something that happened previously. Um, I mean, and maybe there's like a textbook kind of like sort of training wheels in Medius Race, and then there's like a more developed way of thinking about things. But that's what, I mean, I mean I, if you listen, did you not ever hear our In Medius Race podcast, Shana? I have not, actually. Oh, you should listen to it because it's I awesome. know, I know. I, I have. You should, you should listen to the show. Your, you should listen to the show that you're on. It's a good, it's a good show. It's a, we, we put a lot of time into it. Um, yeah, I mean, I, the, I, the idea, at least in, in the, the origin is, is that like, it doesn't begin, um, it begins with action, right? It doesn't begin, it, it doesn't begin with, uh, now this is how the, like some of the, like, gospel narratives do like now this is how the birth of christ came about and and then like there are like generations of lineage and and stuff like that right it's uh it starts with it starts with a wailing baby you know um if it were or it's uh, in in that case right like imagine if the if the fifth gospel if the the uh, apocryphal gospel you know uh began you know 
1 verse 1 began, wah, cried the little baby Jesus. Uh, you, there would be an in medias race opening to your, uh, to your, to your story. Um, and I would say, even if you're talking about a story where you're starting in the middle of an action sequence and proceeding from it, I feel like it's an important idea that there are things that are happening before what happened that matter. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and in that sense, the same things generally hold true that, you know, considering those things, like, what if it's not related in a flashback, but what if it's described? Like, what if one character tells a story to another character about what happened in the past and you get filled in that way? Well, in a movie, there's a really clear difference between an actual flashback and just somebody telling you something that happened in the past. But in a book, it's not as clear between actually putting your characters in the past versus having them relate in their own point of view, things that happened because they're then taking on the role of the author, right? Like, so I could see it going either way in that sense. Um, but yeah, I mean, in either case, I would say, yeah, sure. Oh, hold on a minute. I, I'm looking it up in the, uh, in the Princeton Encyclopedia of Poetry and Poetics, which I still have here. Uh, they, they describe it as the divisive beginning an epic poem, drama, or work of fiction at some crucial point in the middle of a series of events which both initiates a subsequent chain of incidents and at the same time follows as the result of preceding ones. Thus, the author may work forward and backward in time to narrate the story or action. The effect is to arouse the reader's suspense and interest quickly. Um, yeah, it's from Horace. Were you also looking at uh, in that encyclopedia, Matt? Or no, when you found uh, Wiki, Wiki, Wikipedia gives it, uh, gives it as well. Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, because because I think it because I think it's true and and Wikipedia uh, is always right. Well, we might be uh, we might be in the middle of this uh, of this argument and and uh, we'll have to go back to the beginning in order to figure out uh, what was happening. Last uh, last bit of listener back uh, from Stephen uh, who wrote in on our Facebook page. Any chance you guys will discuss the cultural implications of the RoboCop statue to which the answer is yes. Thank you very much for (laughs) there is a chance. There is a non-zero non-zero probability. What a cultural implications of the RoboCop statue. It's it's awesome. I mean what, what, what other what cultural implications do you need? I don't know. The question should not be, why do we make a statue of a guy who's fictional? The question should be, to what extent are all the statues of other guys real? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I thought of a word. Um, if you, I don't know, the words in Logue's email could be called Logue Logos. Think about it. That's my word. <laughs> nice. And the word was with him, and the word was in him. It just came to me. And that's how you start a story about Jesus. You start with the word. (laughs) And the word was Logue. (laughs) All right. Uh, This has been your listener feedback episode. It's been long promised. I hope you enjoyed it. We enjoyed doing it for you. we will be back with more Overthinking It podcast next week. Uh, Next week, Big Tom Cruise movie. Uh, Everyone really... Yeah, Days everyone really excited. <laughs> I like Jack Reacher. This isn't Jack Reacher, though. This is something else. <laughs> that's a shame. Uh, we are so, definitely uh, going to see this movie that's coming out next. <laughs> that's, we have we have pledged to one another our our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor to uh, to go see um, Edge of Forever. No, Days of Tomorrow. Oh, I I give up. It's Edge late of- at night. Uh, Days of past, future. Okay, I don't know. Of, of what is it called? We'll, we'll be back next Edge week. Until then, visit us on the web at Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably, it probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve.